Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. I want to thank you all for showing up today for this awesome podcast episode we have recorded for you. We talk to a forester, the forester that I use on my 15 acres. We talk about some controversial things like his opinion on hinge cutting. We talk about the hack and squirt method and how that works and what his thoughts are on that. We also talk about what a forester actually is, what kind of foresters there are, and how you should hire one that adheres to your goals for your property and nothing else. We talk about what we did on my 15 acres, how he helped me out, and then we talk about his advice on the overpopulation of deer and how that can damage the habitat on your property, and also that can help create a better environment for invasives. It's a really, really informative episode with our friend Hunter Foder from Hunter's Land Management. So he's a local... Michigan, Central Michigan-based forester, and, um, you know, he worked with me to help me get my goals achieved of opening the canopy and um, helped guide me along the way, getting my loggers picked out, etc. And you guys are just, I mean, take some notes on this one, guys. There's plenty, plenty to learn, and uh, it's an exciting conversation, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. I just want to tell you guys, you know, it's habitat season, it's January, Hopefully you're out there getting those chainsaws dirty and uh, sharpening up those chains. I know opening up that canopy is a huge 
proponent or we're a huge proponent of doing that um, on our properties. And right now is one of the best times to do it, guys. So good luck out there. And be sure to wear your safety equipment, your traps, and your helmet. I want to uh, thank you guys once again for turning into the Habitat Podcast. This episode is going to be a great one on forestry. I want to also thank uh, you guys who are booking your land plans over at HabitatPodcast.com. Uh, we booked another one today here in Michigan where we're not going to quite do the full plan because of uh, budget needs and considerations, but we're going to modify and help the landowner achieve his goals no matter what. That's our goal here, guys, at the Habitat Podcast is to help you guys achieve your goals, get pointed in the right direction off the bat. If you're new to your property or new into the Habitat world, we want to help you save the first five years of mistakes, you know, with a plan from us just to get you going. So reach out to us at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. You'll see it up there at the website when you go there. Also at habitatpodcast.com, we have a Habitat Journal. We have a couple new articles coming up, guys, so be, pay attention to those. One from our friend Phil Lincoln. We had him on a ways back, one of our most downloaded episodes. So we'd love to get his article back on here, and uh, we'll share that on the on the podcast site uh, when it's ready. Um, I kind of want to talk about how we got Hunter on the podcast here. Him and I talked about doing a, a forestry podcast a long time ago. We never really got around to it, but we started that new group called Habitat Chat on Facebook. It's linked right to our Habitat Podcast Facebook page, so if you're already a follower, easy to find. It's right there on our homepage. Go over to the group section and go down and join, or just look up Habitat Chat on Facebook, and you'll, you know, you can find us there. Already almost up to 650 members. This thing's barely been going a month, and the content on there is quality. But anyways, Hunter wanted to share his opinion on hinge cutting, so we thought, you know what, let's get him on, let's hear the forester's opinion, and with that came a ton of information on everything forestry and managing your land for better habitat. So, Thank you for all who are on the Habitat Chat group and contributing, and, you know, you guys are great. That's going to be a quality content site, guys. We're not looking for for a huge, huge group. We want quality, great Habitat managers on there to help each other out, and so far it is doing that. So thank you guys for joining. Uh, I want to thank Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty, and Auction for their partnership in our podcast here. I am on their website right now over at um, lakestatesrealtyandauction.com. I was on their Facebook first, which is also uh, Realtree United Country Land Pro. But if you go to lakestatesrealtyandauction.com, you can see Chad's listings right now. I'm looking at a 25-acre brand-new listing here in northern central – I'm sorry, northern eastern Michigan, Aranac County. Um, a little bit north for uh, – from where I'm at, but it's beautiful country up there. I used to hunt up there, actually a little further north of there in Lewiston. And um, you got 25 acres here, guys, for looks like 112 grand. And uh, they actually did some improvements on the property, some U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, wetland restoration. They did some select cutting on chunks of it. They're rotating through that, and then some deer sanctuary where they they kept the logging. Uh, set aside and nobody's been going in there for a long time so looks like there's a bunch of cover and diversity on this 25 acres it's affordable as hell and if you guys want to check it out be sure to check out lakestaterealtyandauction.com and you'll see all chad's great listings 
Next, I want to thank Nick Nation at the Habitat Hook. So I shared a video on Facebook tonight um, that I'm going to share into that group Habitat chat as well. Nick takes a video walking through one of his uh, friend's properties where he does work on with his Habitat Hook and Hinge Cutting. And we get to take a look at what three-year-old maples look like after they've been hinged. So he hinged a bunch of maples, soft maple, three years ago. And if you guys want to see what that looks like on a wide-open woods three years later, check that video out. It's over there at the Habitat Hook Facebook page, um, Habitat Podcast Facebook page. You can find that video up there. And then you can also check out his Habitat Hook over at nationscreations.net. I know that uh, it's one of the most utilized pieces of equipment that I use in the wintertime. I don't go in the woods with my chainsaw without the hook. It's as simple as that. And matter of fact, when I went hunting with my buddy Jordan, uh, I should say on his property down in Illinois, I brought him one. Like, these things are awesome, and uh, you guys should check those out at nationscreations.net. Right now is a great time to bust out the habitat hook in your chainsaw. And uh, like I said earlier, be sure to wear your helmet and your chaps and get out there and create some habitat, guys. I'd also like to thank Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, HuntWise, Packer Max Cult Packers, and Morse Nursery for their support in the podcast. Guys, an awesome, very informative episode, if I can say so myself. Get ready, take some notes, and if you're thinking about hiring a forester, this should answer almost every question you have. And if it doesn't, head on over to our group, the Habitat Chat, and ask away. Hunter is on there, posting regularly. You can ask him whatever questions you want about forestry. This, these programs help lower your taxes, create better habitat, and it's just a win-win situation for the wildlife that we're working on here. So here we go. Let's talk with Hunter Fodor from Hunter's Land Management. All right, everybody. We're back. Brian, trustee and, like I said, most favorite co-host I have. What's going on tonight, brother? New year, buddy. Happy New Year. Hope everybody's doing well on your end. We're doing well over here. Just trying to keep up with life and do the juggling act that you know so well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I need to sleep less. I can tell you that much. It would help. Um, it would help all my different things I have going on. But good to hear that you're doing well. Everybody's staying safe over there. Yeah, everybody's safe and healthy and just trying to uh, make it to the next phase here, whatever that's going to be. Yeah, no kidding, right? Well, good to hear. Uh, next, we have a guest that you all have heard from before, our buddy Albert Tomeshko. What's going on, Al? Hey, Jared. How you doing? Uh, nothing really, man. Just waiting for deer season to wrap up and, and start on habitat season, right? So uh, praying that at least a few bucks made it and getting ready for, for wintertime habitat season and hopefully spring turkey in the near future. And that's about it, man. That's about it. Good to hear, man. You guys have a happy new year and all that good stuff, too? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was very, very good, very good, exciting, I guess, for what the times are, you know. Um, did a lot of Zoom calls with yeah. family and stuff over the holiday. A little different this year, but uh, but it was good overall. So it was uh, exciting to start 2021. Good, man. Great to hear. And um, now to our special guest. We have... A friend of mine, my forester from this year, or last year in 2020, we finally got some logs cut based on uh, 
it's just a long project and, and small amount of logs that need to come out. But he did a great job, and I wanted to have him on here, especially um, after we were talking about some hinge cutting in the group chat the other night. So, Hunter, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. Good to be on. No problem, brother. I know you've uh, heard a few of these shows, so you kind of know how we start off. Let's go ahead and hear about who you are, where you're from, your background, and um, then we'll get into some forestry stuff. All right. So my name is Hunter Fogger. I own Hunters and Land Management Consulting Forestry. I'm based out of central lower peninsula of Michigan, uh, out of the Coleman area. Mm. As far as, you know, what my profession is, being a consulting forester, I work with landowners to help them manage their forest, um, help them with basic forest management, all the way to saving money on property taxes uh, through different programs. Professional credentials, I have a Master's of Forestry from Michigan Tech, uh, Bachelor's of Science from Lake Superior State University. I am a registered forester with the state of Michigan, candidate certified forester, with the Society of American Foresters, uh, a member of the Association of Consulting Foresters, uh, certified to write for stewardship program uh, plans, also certified to write those qualified forest program, uh, forest management plans, technical service provider for the NRCS, uh, American Tree Farm Inspector, oak wilt specialist through the International Society of Arboriculture, and lastly, um, was fortunate enough to receive the uh, Michigan Stewardship Forester of the Year Award for 2020. So, long list, um, but uh, that's that's my credentials for uh, for my profession. No, that's great, man. That's quite the resume. And uh, I knew about most of those, but I did not know about that award for for 2020. And, and while that may not be what took you the longest to earn out of all those credentials? What is that 2020 Stewardship Award? So the Forest Stewardship Program is ran by the Department of Natural Resources. It's a program that helps uh, with the cost share of these forest management plans, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but there's, I want to say, 100, somewhere between 100 and 140 um, of these foresters across the state that are certified to write these management plans. Um, and, you know, the biggest push for the Forest Stewardship Program is um, being good stewards of the land um, and doing sustainable forestry. Uh, so, yeah, that award, it, it kind of took me by surprise. I received it here this last year during a uh, Association of Consulting Foresters meeting, um, and I'll have to say I was pretty tickled to death to get it. So, uh, just being, you know, a few years into my career, it was uh, it felt like a pretty good achievement. Oh, of course, man! Congratulations on that. That had to be uh, yeah, thank you. Quite the quite the gift, or, or you know, um, something that you earned that was more of a surprise. It's, it's pretty amazing. Good, good for you. Yep. Yeah, thank you. So, and then yeah, getting back to you know the background of myself, um, huge hunter. I'm sure just like a lot of the listeners on this podcast. Um, hunt everything from white-tailed deer to big game, uh, waterfowl, small game. Um, just now that uh, the majority of hunting season is winding down, I'm finally starting to get back to working a little bit more. I'm sure it was the same for all you guys, spending more time in the woods probably in the fall than in the office. But uh, 
Uh, yeah, getting back to that, but growing up as a child, I uh, was fortunate enough to live on a 200-acre farm in Jackson County, um, so I had lots of room to roam, and obviously with the name Hunter, it uh, fell right in the place that I was out in the woods all the time hunting and uh, exploring, and kind of, you know, obviously fell in love with uh, with the forest and the habitat, and uh, grew up in a logging family. So, and we'll talk a little bit about the difference between what loggers and foresters are uh, later on, but um, grew up in that side of the forest industry, uh, running equipment, doing a little bit of cutting, not not too much. Um, and as I grew older, uh, kind of being a foreman on some of the job sites. So, have a really good background in the harvest aspect of forest management uh, from just growing up uh with that you know uh, background in the family uh from there decided to go into um biology so like i said earlier have a, a bachelor's degree from lake superior state university in conservation biology wanted to get more into the government aspect of wildlife management uh after a few years of doing seasonal work uh for government agencies i just didn't feel that was the right place for me, so I uh, went back and got my master's in forestry uh, and then kind of found that perfect niche of consulting forestry, you know, being an individual um, uh, business owner and then working for uh, private landowners in their best interest, um, which in a lot of time, a lot of times people find that uh, from the logging aspect of it, a lot of times loggers and timber buyers don't have that forest ecology background. Um, and you know they they've got to make money just like everyone else. So um, broke away from that section of it and really realized I like doing the oversight of the management of the uh, forest ecosystem and, and helping the landowner out rather than the sawmill or the logger. Um, not that obviously I'm not helping those uh, two uh, two folks out you know through the process, but I just wanted the landowner to be the number one priority. So yeah, so that's a that's that's something good we should probably hit real quick. Maybe we should hit the difference between a forester, what type of foresters there are, and maybe even before that, you know, how you are not considered a logger or, or you, you know what I mean? Let, let's let's second yeah, from, from that or vice versa. Yeah, I don't want, I want people to understand that there is a difference because even I, in the beginning of this, kept using the term logging, and you're like, no, it's just, I'm a forester. You know, so it, I, I remember yep. a few years back when we started our conversations, um, that was something that I needed to learn too. So let's, let's maybe dive into that real quick, so everybody has a good understanding. Yeah, so let's 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 talk about that. So foresters, um, in a perfect world, a forester, um, I guess to be called a forester, at least to have those credentials that I I laid out earlier, I have to have a bachelor's degree or higher from a. SAF, a Society of American Foresters accredited university. Um, and obviously through that education, you're going to learn everything you need to know about forest ecology, about the, the management aspects, um, all the different factors as far as invasive species, wildlife, uh, diseases, uh, hydrology. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, but with those um, credentials, you know, we have the ability to take a uh, you could say a blank canvas of a forest and um, know, I guess, the right way that we want to direct that to achieve uh, that landowner's goals um, 
or in you know in certain scenarios uh, with public foresters achieving the goals of that public land. Um, and so what, where loggers and timber buyers fall into this uh, aspect of uh, the forest industry and forest management is they're a management tool. So there's a lot of management that can go on in the forest, and I know you guys have talked about this throughout throughout podcasts, um, and there's one major aspect that everyone kind of thinks about when it when it comes to forest management, and that's commercial harvest or the harvest of of, of a forest woodlot uh, to uh, manipulate that canopy or manipulate that forest to then achieve some goals. Oh, excuse me, and loggers are that management tool. And the nice thing about in most logging scenarios is there's a monetary value that can come out of doing that forest management and go into the landowner's pocket. Now, where we see issues is that loggers can tend to make more money or timber buyers can tend to make more money if they jump that process of using a forester and go directly to the source. And a lot of times what folks will use, uh, timber buyers and loggers, when they go to the landowners, they say, we want to do a selective cut. And in forestry, that's a no-no word. We don't use the word selective cut um, because it's too broad. Uh, it can be depicted too many different ways. And what it usually tends to come out to is a selective cut is a cover-up word for a high grading, where we're going to go in and they're going to specifically harvest trees based on the value of each of those individual stems to make the most money. And that's not long-term sustainable forestry, and that usually doesn't meet any goals. Um, and so those loggers and timber buyers, they make more money when they go through that process and they individually go to landowners and try to buy their timber. But if a landowner goes through the right process and um, does the research, research beforehand, they're going to know they want to use a forester to help manage their forest. Um, and then that forester is going to implement those different recommendations as far as timber harvest and the logger and the timber buyers are then going to be able to come in and do what they're supposed to under the supervision of a forester. So that's the big difference. Most of the time, if someone has those right credentials um, to be called a forester, they're going to call themselves a forester. They're not going to call themselves a timber buyer. They're not going to call themselves a logger. Um, and let's kind of let's touch on the different types of foresters. So, like I said, to be a forester, you have to have um, those specific credentials and education. So, you know, there's three real. You could break it down to three real basic types of foresters um, in this career path. There's uh, public foresters, which you can think about as like your state foresters, your federal foresters. Those are the folks that are only working on public lands. Um, and they're managing those public forests, you know, to benefit everyone. Uh, within that public forester regime, you could say also is folks like district foresters that may be the um, first contact point to landowners. Uh, that are, They're working for, like, NRCS offices and things like that. Uh, in some states, they do the whole process, just like a consulting forester does. Uh, but, like, in Michigan – they are the first contact, and then they're going to help refer out that landowner to the appropriate um, foresters from there on out for that management. Your second forester type is um, industrial foresters. We call them procurement foresters. Again, they have the same education um, as a consultant or a public forester, but they're working directly for sawmills, timber buyers, or loggers. 
Now, they have that same education background, so they should be doing what's right for the forest and what's right for the landowners. But where I tend to push landowners more towards what I am as a consulting forester is at the end of the day, those procurement foresters, they're great guys. I'm friends with lots of them, but they're still working for the sawmill or the timber buyer um, or that logger. So at the end of the day, I mean, where's their best interest really being played into? Um, It may not be a landowner. So that third um, categorization of foresters is what I am, a consulting forester, and I work only for landowners. So I have no attachments to timber markets, um, and you could say no conflicts of interest. So I'm doing what's going to be best for the landowner and what's going to be best for the forest. And situations, um, that's going to be more beneficial to that landowner. Um, And I'm sure, you know, you could probably – be a witness to that, Jared, with, with the work we've done. Um, if you were to go through a log or anything like that, they would have tended to mark that woods, which was going to benefit their pocket uh, the best uh, in most cases. So that kind of, that breaks down the, you know, there's a lot of talking right there, but it breaks down kind of what differences between loggers and timber buyers and then foresters and then those kind of, uh, you know, careers that you can go into as a forester. No, I I appreciate that, and and don't worry about talking. Um, I love it when a guest talks. That's, that's perfect. I think uh, what I also like to ask, though, based on the three foresters, which one, you know, costs the least to cost the most? Because I I think some are free, right, and then some have fees. And whether yeah, you know what you know I I know you weren't a free forester, so am I getting what I'm paying for by the the consulting forester because you're more you're more um, likely to adhere to my goals versus somebody who's not. Or I guess let's, let's run through a quick you know breakdown of the cost for each type of forester just to give somebody an idea. Yeah. So the first um, category we talked about public foresters, the state and federal foresters that are working only on state lands or public lands. Um, they don't work for private landowners, so they're completely out of the um, equation. You can use your district foresters, we call them in Michigan, through the NRCS, and the the southern portion of the Lower Peninsula really doesn't have any of those foresters. It's more as you move up into the northern part of the Lower Peninsula and then the Upper Peninsula. But each county has a designated forester that you can contact at your local NRCS office, and they're a great starting point. Um, They'll come out. Uh, I, I believe it's for free and walk the property with you and give you some ideas. They've, they've got a great education just like I do, and they're a starting point. So then what happens with those foresters is they kind of write up a summary for this landowner, and then they will find out what, you know, what the goals and objectives are of, of the landowner, you know, what's going to happen as far as is there a timber harvest, is, are they going to enroll in the qualified forest program, therefore they need a forest management plan. And they send that out to us consultants and procurement foresters that are on their list as a referral. And then we respond back to say, hey, we're interested in this project and we're not. And then that district forester from there will give that list of interested foresters uh, from the private sector to the landowner who then can, you know, pick and choose who he thinks is going to fit, you know, his needs the best. Um, so I think, in my opinion, I you know I even will steer landowners in that direction 
um, instead of just trying to get them to work with me because I think that's a, a great way to go as a starting point. Um, now, your procurement foresters, their main goal is to get out and buy timber for whoever they're working for. So they want to be out on the landscape buying timber more than anything. They don't really want to be writing management plans in, in most scenarios um, or they're doing some of the other little things like forest stand improvement and basic species control. Um, a lot of times they're just not an, an all-around um, full forester for the landowner. Like I said, their job is to procure timber for those uh, markets that they work for. So, yes, they tend to come out for free, where as a consulting forester, we tend to charge a fee for that first initial consultation. And then, like I said, we work directly for the landowner, so that's that's where our money's made. Um, so you don't find very often where a consulting forester is just going to come out and do free consultations and things because uh, at the end of the day, and that doesn't make money and, and you're not going to stay in business very long. So you could go different routes. Now, where I tend to find, at least in southern Michigan, where you're at, Jared, is there's not very many procurement foresters, if any. Um, most of the sawmills and, and loggers down there, they just have timber buyers. And like I said before, timber buyers don't have that knowledge and education in forest ecology um, or that degree. So as you get further north, some landowners do prefer those uh, procurement foresters. And I'm, like I said, friends with lots of them. And they're great guys. Um, but for the smaller landowner or a landowner that really wants to make sure he's going to get uh, everything done in his best interest, a consultant's the way to go because, like I said before, we're working directly for the landowner. And at least in my business, I can't speak on behalf of other consultants, but I offer, you know, everything that I would prescribe in a forest management plan, like we've been talking, timber harvest, forest and improvement, I offer all of those services. So I'm a pretty roundabout forester to, to cover all the needs of that, excuse me, of that specific landowner. Um, so I'm a little biased, but in my opinion, I think consultants are the best way to go. Um, and then, you know, another thing that I didn't touch on um, with consulting foresters, when we come to a timber harvest, a procurement forester is going to offer you X amount of money that he's willing to pay for that timber. And if you go with him, that's what you're going to get. And with consulting forestry, if the scenario um, is appropriate for it, we do full timber sale administration, and we put it through a bidding process. Now, on smaller jobs, uh, I know we did it on yours, Jared, but most of the time I don't do it in small situations like that. But you know how that timber sale um, bidding process went. We, we right. do the prospectus. We oversee that whole process, send it out to those potential timber buyers, um, and try to get as much interest as we can possible so then we can get the highest price um, or and or the uh, the best cutter on the job. So that's where it can be really beneficial. Um, I've had multiple landowners where the bids come in and the low bid and the high bid, I've had them where it's an $80,000 difference. Um so if you were to go with an individual buyer or an individual procurement forester, what's saying that you would have got that highest guy or you would have got the lowest guy? It's hard to say. Um, and then on top of that, if they're if they know they're not in a bidding war with other people, they're just like anyone else. They're not going to probably offer top dollar. Um, top dollar comes with competition. So that's where that bidding process, you know, is really beneficial 
when it's appropriate for a timber sale. No, that was a great explanation. So thanks for thanks for diving into that. I um, I think ours went great. And for anybody that wants to follow along with my exact uh, forestry experience, Hunter and I did film uh, two or three or four videos on this that will be up on our Habitat Podcast YouTube and Facebook. So, you know, if you guys want to see exactly what took place with Hunter and I on my property, to, um, you know, back up what he's saying here, we'll be launching that stuff here soon. Um, Al, to you, my man. Yeah, Hunter, um, that's a really exciting explanation that you've given. I I have a question for you in regards to that. So I'm assuming that most of your clientele are a little bit of a hybrid mix between somebody who just wants to make money and somebody who's concerned about uh, wildlife habitat. But in your opinion, do you see a correlation between timber prices and people's willingness to harvest timber or to perform a cut? Um, or do you think that sometimes you're able to convince somebody, hey, the timing's right, this is going to benefit the future of the forest as well as other wildlife, we really need to cut now even though timber prices might not be in, in the best interest um, for the potential seller? I know that's something around eastern Ohio where our property is, um, a neighbor of ours cut timber actually this year, you know, and everyone kind of hedges with, I'm cutting, but the prices aren't really where they're supposed to be, but I just got to cut anyways. So I was kind of curious on your take as to what you see with your clientele. Yeah, so most of my clientele is just like you guys. They're really interested in wildlife habitat, you know, big white-tailed deer hunters. Um, They just want to see more wildlife on their property. I do have some landowners that specialize more in, goals like commercial harvest or uh, I shouldn't say commercial harvest, this is commercial value uh, over time. Uh, folks that don't hunt at all, they're just interested in, you know, a high biodiversity in their forest. Um, but where I find with the timber markets is it's, especially with COVID right now, it's fluctuating and, uh, you know, markets down in Ohio are completely different than markets, let's say, in the Upper Peninsula or the uh, northern portion of the Lower Peninsula. Um, what they're dealing with up there is more pulp with warehouser, um, different pine markets, where if you get in the southern Michigan, there's no market for pine. Um, so it really depends on those individual markets. There's some markets that are doing really well right now uh, and some that are doing very poorly. I would say the majority are doing uh, what would most people would consider poor. Um, there are some species like black walnut, white oak, sugar maple um, that seem to be holding their own during COVID um, in different and some different uh, pole timber markets. Uh, but it really comes down to those landowners' goals and objectives. I, I run into a lot of landowners that money is not their concern. So if there is a value there where it's not going to cost them, um, they're ready to move. And you'd be surprised when we get into these situations where it's lulls, where markets are poor, a lot of other consulting foresters like myself and a lot of landowners like you are thinking, we're not going to sell our timber right now um, because prices are low. So all of a sudden, there's kind of a lack in in available timber, um, which can peak more interest. It doesn't necessarily, you know, peak in an exponential price on that timber for stumpage, stumpage rates, but it may get more interest because there's less jobs out there 
uh, to buy at that specific time. And with loggers and timber buyers, and I know this from growing up in the family uh, of loggers, is they usually have jobs, you know, out a year ahead. So what they're cutting right now is probably what they bought last year. Um, so it can it can really differ where you're at. You know, I can only really speak for the lower peninsula of Michigan on where I work. Um, but if if the landowner, if it's feasible to their goals uh, and objectives, I don't try to push timber harvest um, right here, right now, if we can wait a little bit and see if, if uh, the financial value can come up on it, because obviously that's, that's beneficial to everyone. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Hunter. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. So, Hunter, speaking of, of where you work in, in lower Michigan and, and working on my property, like I said, we're going to have those videos up. But let's, I, I don't want to dwell too long on it, but explain how, how you helped me in kind of a crummy situation uh, achieve my goals. I was very upfront with you right off the bat. I'm just, I'm not here for the, for the value. If I can, that's great. But, um, you and I both knew it was going to be kind of tough back there where it's all wet. I guess let's just mm-hmm. walk through real quick what we did for, for my back eight acre woods back there. And, um, you know, what I can expect to see, you know, over the next upcoming years in terms of, uh, regrowth and, and habitat. Yeah. So in your situation, you know, your main goal was I want better wildlife habitat. I want more understory vegetation. Um, uh, just pretty much you wanted it greener, lower down. And there was a harvest before you purchased the property, like we've talked about, um, that came through, you know, maybe it was five or six years before. I can't remember the, the timeline. Um, but they did a, we you could call a thinning or um, – it was almost like a white oak shelter would because down in that low ground, there's a lot of swamp white oak and a lot of red maple, um, which is pretty common in those lower soil types uh, in southern Michigan. So what we're looking at is, you know, we've already talked about before, there's definitely an overbrowsing issue in that area with overpopulations of white-tailed deer. Um, and those are some pretty moist soils where we've even got some standing water in quite a bit of areas during a lot of the growing season. So, you know, what our objective was, was to kick that back to an earlier successional period. And, you know, a lot of people, when we think early succession, we think of grass fields um, with a lot of uh, vegetation coming up in it and then trees come come up further down the line. So we were just trying to kick that back to almost that point and not so much of an early successional forest, but more um, – you know, things like hopefully cattails, reeds, um, things like that, you know, earlier successional species coming up in there that are going to provide way more cover at that lower level. Um, and under those higher light conditions, what we did was we did a very heavy cut. We did pretty much almost a, a clear cut or I would call a seed tree cut. Um, and we left very few stems uh, that could potentially be seed sources uh, for new regeneration of the future, but so much sunlight coming in there that we're going to get a ton of uh, new ground flora coming up in there, which is going to create, you know, more potential for wildlife habitat. So in that specific situation, we weren't 
really looking for uh, more forest regeneration, but kicking it back to an uh, earlier stage of succession where we're going to have more of that um, ground vegetation that's going to be beneficial uh, for for cover and, and for uh, for browsing for white-tailed deer. Now, does that make you does that make you cringe at all that it wasn't more of like a forest a normal forestry application, or is that just what the goal was and you're cool with it no matter what? I'm cool. I'm absolutely cool with any goal as long as it's going to fit long-term sustainability. So like we talked about, you know, it's really important to um, try to get that deer population lowered and we want to make sure that invasive species don't take over down in there because then we're creating an unsustainable system um, that may provide cover for white-tailed deer, but it's not providing any food for white-tailed deer if that was all to turn into buckthorn um, or phragmites or something like that. So, um, I'm completely fine with it as long as it's staying along that line of what a natural system is. Uh, what have I liked to see that, seeing that come back as a bunch of swamp white oak? Yes, in a perfect, in a perfect world. Um, but no, I had no issues with, with, uh, really pushing that succession back to an earlier stage. No, that's great. And, and there are enough trees for me back there, seed trees where I can bop around and still have enough trees to hunt. And then, like you mentioned, we release the heck out of them, so hopefully the um, rate of growth will will increase on what's left. My thought is, with how wet it is, do you see a delay in any regrowth from the ground? You know, early succession because of or because when things are that wet, do you see that often, or is it just a different succession that's going to come up? It certainly could hold it back. I mean, those wetter systems, it, it's all going to be based on where that water table sits in the growing season. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of uh, hydrophilic species that are going to come up great in there. Uh, so I think no matter what, something's going to grow. It's just we're just going to have to see what comes up um, and make sure, like I said, again, invasives don't start to pop up. And you know what I always like to what I always like to uh, think about when you see a lot of invasive species, that means the growing conditions are perfect for natives. It's just that there's some other issues going on as far as, you know, having too much of a seed source of invasives or having too much browsing occurring from white-tailed deer, uh, and they're really limiting the growth on those native species. So, you know, I think as we see that progress, it'll be interesting to see um, what comes up. But I feel pretty confident that, you know, with time, um, that's certainly going to become heavily vegetated. For sure. And just to give everybody a, a quick summary, it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, logging company's dream when we were bidding this out. We had to bid out a couple times because it was wet. It had already been cut. It's really it was really kind of an uphill battle in, in that point. But you know, you got it done. I didn't have to go in there and cut it myself, and you know, spend how much time. Um, or injury, or or what have you, with those big trees. Um, I have some nice walking trails now that I was able to kind of direct the way I wanted them. I created a, a badass pinch point down in the woods there, which worked well all fall. So, you know, even though it seemed like it wasn't doable, and I talked to a few other people besides you, and it, you know, you got it done. So, I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was definitely a challenge, and, and like I said, most scenarios, we wouldn't use timber sale administration in that. Um, 
but it seemed fit for for what we were trying to do. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm I'm glad. And I, like I said, I think it's gonna it, it takes time. So forest systems and natural systems, it's not like a cornfield where it just immediately comes back up. It's it's an investment in time. So these systems they they rebound a lot slower than what we would like to see as human beings. Um, so as you know, if you if you give it that patience, it'll really start to to rebound, and I think it's going to be real beneficial. So Hunter, one thing that is uh, popular among a lot of uh, weekend warrior habitat managers like us is hinge cutting, and uh, it's kind of controversial too. Anytime it seems like we bring it up on the show, there's always a few people that say, "Oh, those guys are all for hinge cutting all the time." Well. Most of our listeners know that's not true. There are applications for it. We don't uh, propose that everybody just goes out and hinge cuts everything. But I would like to get your take on that since it's such a hot-button topic often. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I'm going to be definitely on the uh, opposing side of it. Um, so where I really come in with, you know, this hinge cutting, this this new thing with hinge cutting is, you know, from, from your, and I'd like to hear what your guys' standpoint is on it, but I feel like with most landowners, they walk into their woods, they have this barren understory with no vegetation, and they go, let's do some of this hinge cutting because we're going to take vegetation from the upper canopy and bring it down and, and fix this problem. But from my opinion, you know, what I think it is is where when you're hinge cutting, you're, you're attacking a symptom of a problem. You're not attacking the actual problem. So we're looking at the problem as, you know, we we can't get anything to grow down here. We don't know why, but we're going to hinge cut and we're going to get uh, vegetation down at this um, understory. Where I re- see most often is if you were to just use your trigger finger more often and really reduce those deer populations, you, you can look at different studies done by Cornell University. Michigan State has a, a study area where they've taken properties and even areas with high basal area um, where we've got really dense forest, thick canopies where, you know, from our experience walking around in a thick canopy like that, nothing's going to grow because there's not enough sunlight. But there are plenty of shade-tolerant species, um, both herbaceous and tree species and shrubs, that can grow under those low-light conditions very easily. Um, I shouldn't say very easily, but are, are expected to be found in those low-light conditions. Um and so we walk through this understory and we go, there's no way we're going to get anything to grow. But through these studies at these universities, they've shown that they'll take a piece of property and they'll put a 10-foot fence around a section of it, uh, in some situations a pretty big area, and they just, that fenced-in area doesn't have any deer in it. And there's a night and day difference um, when you're standing on that fence from outside where the deer can eat and inside where the deer can't. Outside where the deer can eat is what we'd expect, what we're used to. No understory vegetation. On the other side of that fence, it's so thick you can't even see through it. Um, so it's a really big balance with um, meeting that carrying capacity of the system. And we all talk about a, a general carrying capacity. And what I try to remind landowners is this carrying capacity has to be looked at differently in different situations. So in southern Michigan, well, actually, let's start with northern Michigan, where we have very heavily forested land. It resembles pre-European establishment. Um, so it's still a very wide natural system. And 
where I get into those areas, these large tracts of forest where there still is some broke up agricultural land and things like that, but for the most part, the major portion of the land is still in its natural system, natural ecosystem. Um, deer browse doesn't tend to be as bad. Uh, you see lots of ground flora, you see lots of seedlings, you see lots of saplings, but as we get down into areas where the land is more fragmented, you know, talking specifically uh, southern Michigan, Jackson County area where Jared's property is, you know, we've taken land that, you know, pre-European establishment um, was more, it was 100% natural, and there was a lot of it was forested. Well, now we take a, a one-mile square area, 640 acres, that used to be a natural system. Maybe 100% of that was forested. Now we've got 500 acres of that is a cornfield, and the other 140 is a mixture of forest, swamp, and grassland, and we still have that same deer population as before, if not more. You're taking these cornfields and things that are um, what I what I consider and what I call artificial habitat or an artificial carrying capacity. You know, through the growing season, there's all this food there, and then once the fall comes and either the hay goes dormant or the corn is is picked or shelled, those become deserts, and all those deer that have been using that area the whole entire year are now going to resort back to that little bit of natural ecosystem, and it's just too many miles. Uh, to feed and it just they devour any regeneration that you see so in specific areas that I hunt I have a far a family farm in Jackson and a family farm in Isabella County we've been doing intensive uh, antlerless deer harvest and we're starting to see a lot of vegetation in that understory that as habitat folks that want to see a thick understory we're starting to see that because we're reducing that deer population so you know where I have the biggest issue with the hinge cutting um and there's a few issues, and I'm going to cover them all. Uh, but uh, my biggest thing is that we're not attacking the problem. We're attacking a symptom of the problem. Um, and where it, it gets even worse, because I've been in a lot of forest and I've seen a lot of landowners that have hinge cut, is that we're taking these saplings. Um, in some situations, people are cutting pole timber, even saw timber. Um, all this years of growth, and we're bringing it down, and in most scenarios, it's only living a year or two and dying right off. So we've taken all this um, production over time of maybe a 20- or 30-year-old uh, sapling, and we've brought it down to the understory, and it's it's been beneficial for maybe a few years. And there are situations where it lasts longer, but sooner or later, gravity and the overall size of that tree as it continues to grow is going gonna, is gonna to outcompete that little bit of sapwood that's still attached. So we're, and again, we still have the the browsing issue, and we expect to, as we get in these areas, oh, now that we've opened this canopy up a little bit, we should be seeing seedling development and things like that. If the seedlings are able to compete with that vegetation that you've now brought to that lower layer, um, we still have a deer browse issue. So the deer just come in and they devour those seedlings, and like I said, I've looked at lots of these areas, and this is pretty consistent for what I see, and then on top of that, with the issues we have with invasive species like honeysuckle, autumn olive, buckthorn, multiflora rose, those get introduced into those areas. The deer are now attacking our native seedlings just as much as they were before if they are starting to develop, but they're not really hitting those invasives. And that's what the big issue with invasive species are is that they don't have really any natural 
predators. They don't, they mean, yes, I've watched deer browse on autumn olive and honeysuckle, and they hit it a little bit, but they don't hit it enough to be detrimental to that stem. So we've now created a perfect scenario for these invasive species. We've removed the regeneration because the deer are eating it down to nothing, and then the deer are eating the invasives. So now the invasives don't have any competition, and they don't have any natural predators. So in a lot of these places I've seen hinge cutting, they've exploded into invasive species um, areas where it's just a bunch of autumn olive, a bunch of honeysuckle, and from there, it's obviously very hard to revert it back to a natural system. The last thing I'd like to touch on and why we really um, don't approve of hinge cutting in, in forestry is I work alongside loggers every day that are out in the woods, um, and their profession is to fell trees with chainsaws, and we'll walk across the hinge cut area, and they'll just start laughing. I said, what are you laughing for? And they, and they say, well, these guys must have death wishes because – you know, when you take a chainsaw um, safety course, they're going to teach you that you have to do an open face cut. You got to leave a hinge on there, and you got to do either do a bore cut or a back cut, uh, and that's going to help direct that tree down, and it's going to help prevent it from barber chairing. And I've right. seen lots of trees in the woods where you get these huge barber chairs, and those folks are lucky to be alive because if that hits you in the head, it lights out. I mean, you're done. Absolutely. And, and in my opinion. There's different ways we can do management that's much safer. Um, but, again, like I said, that I understand why folks do it, but when you start to look into the problem more, you can start to see, hey, there is other ways that we can accomplish our goals without doing this hinge cutting. Um, and those, you know, those two big factors that are really holding back that understory growth is either overbrowse from white-tailed deer or if you start getting too high of a base layer, too thick of a canopy, we can't open that up with proper forest management and get those same results. It may not be as quick. Everyone likes that thing about hinge cutting is all of a sudden it's right there and it's ready to go. I mean, it's, it's right. instant gratification and that doesn't come with forestry. We have to be, we have to be patient, but you'd be surprised on some heavier cuts. And like I said, a lot of my clients are all about wildlife habitat. The selective cut, you know, that improper terminology, um, where we tend to use something that looks similar to that as single tree selection. But if you want an aggressive harvest that's going to promote more vegetation in that understory, we start to look at things like group selection, shelter wood harvest, and even clear cuts are a silvicultural uh, harvest technique. So like I said, when it, when it comes to hinge cutting, if it's being used for actual forest management, I disagree with it. If you're using it for things like covering up trails to get in to your tree stand or covering around your blind for cover, um, or, you know, I know landowners uh, that I work with that Jared's friends with too, um, that he has black locusts along his property line along the road, and he's hinge cut that to um, kind of create a pretty thick screen so there's no poaching occurring in his in his fields or anything. So um, right. in those small situations, I, I tend to be okay with it. And then kind of, you know, the the little bit of rule for me, at least, is if you're going to hinge cut something, don't be hinge cutting anything over the size of a sapling, which is four inches diameter at breast height. Because anything bigger than that, it's, it's starting to be pretty dangerous. Right. So I mean, that's that's my two cents on hinge cutting. I don't know if it's really what you guys wanted to hear or not, but you know, that's oh, absolutely. Swear. I think I, I think I can speak on behalf of most foresters um, that – 
that that's how most of us feel about the hinge cutting. No, I I completely agree with where you're coming from and understand where you're coming from. And and to your point, here in Pennsylvania, on some of our uh, state game lands, I've seen areas where the game commission has fenced off to do uh, regeneration studies and things like that. And you're you're spot on when that when the deer are kept out or kept in proper numbers, like you said, through harvest, you have a lot better regeneration and you get more cover and more understory growth. So that's absolutely the goal. I understand where you're coming from on that aspect. And I'm not defending the guys that do the hinge cutting, but I think from their perspective, they're trying to, like you said, get something quick. They may have bought a property that's all mature timber. They have no cover. There's no sunlight getting to the ground. And they're seeing a lot of this, you know, promotion of this hinge cutting on these habitat forums and different things where some guys are having a lot of success with it. But I, I have to be honest, I think I see a lot more people doing it wrong. And I think Al and, and Jared would agree with me on this. And obviously you've seen it. There's more guys doing it completely the wrong way. And uh, they're just setting themselves back. But for as far as getting sunlight to the uh, forest floor, I could see why guys are doing it for, uh, you know, sometimes you can do that in the, in the late winter, early spring, and have, you know, a thick carpet of something in there by the time hunting season comes around. But like you said, mm-hmm. to your point, you got to be careful not to encourage invasives and keep an eye on it. You know, if you just whack it and let it go and, and something ugly starts coming in there and you're not paying attention, you're just going to be kicking the can down the road and causing yourself more trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're, you know, there's a few other foresters like me that we we really want to see what the long-term effects are of this hinge cutting. It's such a new practice. Um, you know, I, maybe you guys would know, I don't know how far back it goes, you know, when the first documented hinge cutting occurred. Um, but, yeah, we want to see what the long-term effects are, and I think we're going to start doing some research on that. And then looking also at, you know, doing some adjacent study groups where we're going to hinge cut some areas. And then we're just going to do a regular fall uh, felling of those, you know, uh, stems that we would have hinge cut or, you know, do a hack and squirt or something like that and see, you know, what we're going to get for results in those two locations. So, you know, obviously as that stuff progresses, you know, I'll be able to share that with you guys and uh, it can maybe help landowners make, you know, decisions that um, that they feel are appropriate. Yeah, I'd- Hunter, I think your explanations were, were spot on, and, you know, to, to your point about it might not be what we want to hear, it's exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, you know, we're all trying to promote the best practices possible, and while a forester may not always agree um, on, on some things, there are certain benefits that, that have been proven, like you mentioned, with maybe an access trail or, you know, maybe you're cutting down some junk trees, you can hinge some of that less desirable stuff that maybe the deer want to browse on. But at the same time, to your one point, I wonder what the studies are, are, are too. I know there's a guy that goes by the name of Mike Hartjust. I know he started hinge cutting 20, 25 years ago, something like that. Um, and I don't know if he's documented pros and cons and all that good stuff. But to, to your point and to Brian's point, there are a ton of people out there that are doing it wrong and – and in terms of a, a management plan that Brian and I offer, when we recommend any sort of cutting 
it's usually either call Hunter the forester for your woods, you know, or a forester in your area. And the goal is to get the sunlight to the forest floor. Whether you want to do that with forestry, hinge cutting, do your research, and and make your decision. But um, there are a lot of guys who recommend straight hinge cutting all the time. There's a lot of guys in Michigan who've been around forever, and and they're huge proponents of it. So. You know, maybe there's two sides to the coin, it seems, but I do respect your, your opinions on that, and, and thanks for, you know, sharing those with us here. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, Hunter, I have a question again um, in regards to something you hit on through the hinge cutting topic. Uh, you mentioned carrying capacity of white-tailed deer specific, specific to a property where somebody's trying to hinge cut and trying to add more browse uh, for those deer. In a lot of cases, you feel like the populations probably need to be reduced. I'm curious, um, in your experience, and I'll give you some context as to why I'm asking this, but in your experience, do you feel that most of the areas that you consult on, I I know you're kind of um, focused on the lower part of Michigan, need numbers reduced? And the reason I, uh, the context behind asking that question is because in Ohio, um, I would say a large portion of the state of Ohio <clears throat> in the 2000s had very large deer numbers. Um, and then we went through a phase of having what most hunters complained that the deer numbers were far too low. So you, if you start uh, presenting, hey, you only need to shoot more does, uh, Brian's hunted, hunted Ohio, so is Jared, you probably would see a large population of guys go, what are you talking about? There's hardly any deer here. Um, however, I personally have worked with for state foresters as well as a consulting forester um, on our family property, and both of them are like, oh, the deer numbers are just too high. So it's always interesting to me to hear a, a forester's perspective as to how they're looking at regeneration and seeing kind of the deer browse, and what would your uh, kind of take beyond that on the properties that you see? Yeah, so pretty much anywhere I've been in, in lower Michigan, the, the southern portion of the lower peninsula, deer populations are too high for that natural carrying capacity. Now, I'm not saying it's not too high for the overall carrying capacity um, because there's that many deer there, so they're obviously surviving. But like, you know, touching back on what I said before, trees, just because we changed the landscape to a completely different look where we have more agricultural land, more fragmentation, those trees didn't adapt to that. They adapted to amounts of deer browse over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, and they met that that balancing act, and then all of a sudden we've, you know, changed this landscape so drastically. So what I mean about the carrying capacity of the natural system, it's, it's exceeding that, is, you know, if we had 640 acres of forest and we had 20 deer on it, you're going to see a ton of regeneration because there's going to be lots of regeneration across that entire landscape. Um, when we break that down now from a 640-acre forest to a 40-acre forest in the middle of a cornfield, there's no way that that seedling regeneration, it grows slow, um, it's not going to be able to compete with that intensive browsing from deer. And when you walk through the forest with a forester, we can start to point those things out and you really start to notice them. You know, until they're pointed out to you, you don't really notice it. Um, But yes, in my opinion, the majority of the places I've been, the white-tailed um, deer population is far exceeding um, what that natural system uh, 
can can hold and and, and still regenerate um, new growth for the future. Uh, well, I think the biggest issue that I'm seeing with the whitetail hunting community, and I was just as bad with it before my education, is we're so focused on shooting big bucks. It's all about the antlers anymore, it seems like. You know, we watch all these hunting shows on the Outdoor Channel. Everyone's so focused on shooting these big, mature whitetail deer. And we did go through a stage, um, you know, through, I think it was through the 50s and 60s, where our deer populations were super low. Um, and I guess don't quote me on that time frame, but so there was, you know, a big thing. We're not going to shoot those because we want the population to rebound. Well, then we got it stuck in our head that we're just going to buck hunt. And I know so many landowners that have a ton of land and I've, you know, you can go out in their field at night and there's 50, 60 deer in it and they shoot their buck or their two bucks and they're done. And it's, you know, if you want to be a a conservationist, in my opinion, you've got to really focus on that overall objective of, we need to um, control this white-tailed deer herd so it doesn't affect the ecosystem. It, you know, deer have um, had the ability to really influence the habitat around them, and we can all see that, obviously, when we get into areas where uh, forests that are overgrazed and you see lots of invasive species. I mean, they're manipulating that system right there just because their numbers are far exceeding what that system can hold. Um, so, you know, to give you some examples, and I might get a little backlash from this, and that's fine. Um, we, The two farms I hunt, one in Isabella, one in Jackson County, um, are about 200 acres apiece. The farm in Isabella, you could go out at night spotlighting in the winter and see over 100 deer in just one field. You know, that's not even covering a whole square mile. So we started this year doing intensive doe harvest, and we shot 34 does off of that farm this fall um, in a combination of using your uh, up to 10 issued antlerless licenses to the DNR and then also a program called the uh, Deer Management Assistant Permits uh, that landowners can get um, if the local biologist approves for them. So the one parcel we ended up getting, 30 of these DMAP permits, and uh, we went to town, and we're going to be doing studies. We're actually uh, implementing plots out there to see, as we continue to do this intensive doe harvest, are we going to start seeing um, forest regeneration? We're actually going to have some exclosures, 20 by 20 foot by 8 foot high fences, to see what it's going to look like, obviously, under a circumstance of no deer, but we want to see as this progresses where we continue to to harvest does, are we going to start to see more forest regeneration? And I, I feel pretty confident that we're going to because on the farm in Jackson County, we've been hunting uh, for the last three years on that 200 acres. We've been shooting about 10 to 15 does a year. And this year, it, actually the last two years, I've been seeing more seedling development in the understory that I've ever seen on that property. And I grew up on that property. Um Tons of oak regeneration, and you can kind of measure it based on that height because as seedlings develop, um, once they get, become a sapling, they're above that browse line. But a lot of times we'll see these six-inch seedlings in the forest, and we go, oh, there's a seedling there. Um, but we should be seeing different heights as that seedling progresses into the second year. It should be a foot high. should be a foot and a half high by the third year, maybe three feet high by the fourth year. Um, and I'm starting to see that progression every year as we continue to do this antlerless harvest. And, you know, at first it's nerve-wracking because you've never did it before, but this is the third year that 
it's been implemented. And I had multiple hunts this year. Where I went out and I intended to shoot a doe for a family member, and all I saw was bucks. I mean, it was like a awesome problem to have. I one hunt that intended to shoot a doe, and I, all I saw was seven bucks, and three of them were shooters. So I think as that habitat is starting to become better, and there's start to be uh, more vegetation for the to, for the deer to utilize, um, we have these these roaming young bucks that are moving into this area and it's and it's you know open for the taking so i'm starting to see more bucks on the property and i would say if i was to average out every sit on that property on average over the course of the entire season i saw more bucks than does which was a pretty you know great thing to feel after doing three years of intensive doe harvest so it's it's one of those things that it's kind of nerve-wracking and like you said with landowners they talk about hey, I would, you know, I want to see as many deer as I can. And then we kind of set these high points where we have a high deer population, and that's what we think it should always be at. Um, we think that the average should be the high. Um, and we see that a lot in the Upper Peninsula where everyone always says, oh, back in the, you know, 80s, 90s, there was deer everywhere. Now there's barely any. And it's it's not that now we have a low amount of deer. It's more that now that the population even out maybe to more of a, what the carrying capacity is of that system. Um, but like I said, I think, you know, one of the biggest problems in the in the hunting world, the deer hunting world, is we need to start getting back to not always being about shooting big antlered bucks, but maybe doing what's better for for the habitat. And it, I feel like I'm going to, I shot two bucks this year. Uh, I was fortunate to tag out, and I shot 19 does. So, I mean, I feel like I'm really doing my part as lower in that doe population um and like i said check back and we'll see how it goes but from the one farm in jackson i'm seeing nothing but but uh positive results well you tell a pretty compelling story there buddy it's hard to it's hard to argue with that um how about your farm up north how how are the antlerless uh harvesting the, the heavy antlerless harvest you know showing up for for bucks you know, year after year up there? This is the first year we've implemented it. So it's okay. been a family-owned farm for, I want to say, 60 or 70 years, and everyone's always been about shooting bucks. Um, and you walk through that woods, and it's a beautiful, you know, beach, hemlock, red oak-dominated forest, a really, you know, nice later successional forest. And there's gaps in there, and there's basal areas. You know, when I talk about basal area, that's a... Uh, kind of a tool we use to measure um, forest densities and forestry. Um, but, you know, you can see um, regeneration, anything from 120 basal area to less than a forest like that. And there's plenty of areas where we've got good gaps and we're sitting far below that threshold and there's no regeneration. And if there is any, it's a big autumn olive bush or something like that. And as soon as I see those invasives, I know, okay, this is perfect growing conditions for our natives. It's just the deer are browsing them away because if the invasive's growing there, you know, I, I would sure think that a native should be able to grow there. So we're still going to, you know, it's going to be a few years before we start to see the impacts. Like I said, the first study plots, we're going to be, I wish we had a nice control. We, we should have did some study plots last year to have a, a control group uh, to see what it looked like before the initiation of the harvest. But um, I think, you know, this year will be pretty similar to a control and then hopefully by 2022, I think we're going to start to see sugar maple seedlings pop up that no one could have seen in that woods for the last 60 years. 
So, and you can really tell that the seedling development hasn't been there because not only are we uh, not having any seedling uh, densities in there, there's no sapling densities. So there's a really big gap in age structure. We have a ton of saw timber and a little bit of pole timber, and then all of a sudden there's nothing else. You know, when you look at a, a basic uh, uneven aged stand and how the densities should vary um, between smaller size class diameter trees and larger ones, you should obviously have a ton more of the littler trees than the larger trees. And it's the complete opposite in the woods like that and most woods I walk through. So um, those are things that, you know, after this podcast, I'm sure a lot of listeners and you guys as well, you'll start walking through the woods and you'll start thinking about these things and going, okay, I, I, I see now the deer are definitely doing a heck of a lot of damage in here. Yeah, and, and you and I had that discussion this summer on, on my place. Um, and that's kind of one point I want to hit real quick. When you're seeing an ample amount of sunlight, um, some some decent ground, and an increased amount of, of invasives, it, does that just scream overpopulation to you? Or, or what are you overpopulation of deer to me? Of deer, okay. Are there yeah. any, is there yeah, anything else that, with that, that that screams overpopulation? You can have some girdling damage from uh, cottontail rabbits, things like that. Um, but for the most part, you know, what's really making the impact in the forest is the white-tailed deer. Well, we don't really look at much else because we don't find um, in the studies that a lot of universities do and things, I don't think they really see much other wildlife affecting regeneration. You know, they, there may be other species like turkeys and um, things like that that maybe are, you know, affecting germination rates because of reduction in, you know, seeds actually actually being able to germinate. But as far as after germination, your biggest issue is going to be white-tailed deer. I mean, they're, that's what they're, they're hitting in the winter when all that other food source is gone. Um, they're resorting back to that, that woody browse. They're browsing on those, those buds, those young um, tips of the branches that are, that are still uh, palatable. And, uh, that's supposed to be next year's growth for those those seedlings. So if you're, you know, cutting it off right there, it, it can't progress. Sure, sure. No, I appreciate you you mentioning those couple things there. Um, so so moving on into one of our last couple subjects here, let's talk about forestry programs in Michigan. Um, obviously, you you tailored to Michigan. What do landowners here? have to have to qualify and if they are um if they you know if, if they can apply this program to them what first steps do they have to take just give us a little rundown on, on the forestry programs here in michigan yeah so the the two major ones that come to my mind is the commercial forest program and the qualified forest program the commercial forest program which most folks aren't going to be interested in that are listening to this podcast is um, CSP gives you a huge break on your taxes. Um, I want to say it's only a dollar and a quarter per acre per year, and don't quote me on that, but it's it's somewhere low um, in that range um, that you have to pay, but you have to have your property open to public hunting. So I don't have any clients that are interested in that program. Um, the other program, which almost all my clients are interested in or have enrolled or are currently enrolling into, 
is the Qualified Forest Program, and that is through the Michigan Department of Agricultural and Rural Development. And to enter that program, and I guess let's first really quick touch on some other things that can save you money um, that are programs that are similar. So there's the homestead exemption. So if you live on the tax parcel ID, and that is your home address, and, and I'm just talking for Michigan right now, um, you get a capping of your taxable value and you get an 18 mil exemption on the school operating portion. Um, I shouldn't say 18 mils, but up to 18 mils is what that school operating portion can be. Um, and you get an exemption on that so you don't have to pay that. Another program, which most people are very familiar with, is the Qualified Ag Program. That is, you know, if your property is categorized as agriculture, it's at least 50% tillable, and there's no limit on acreage, uh, anything from one acre and up. If it's 50% tillable, again, you get the capping of the taxable value, and you get exempt from that school millage, which tends to be 18, per, uh, 18 mils. Um, the third program, which a lot of people aren't familiar with, is the Qualified Forest Program. Uh, this program, you have to have a minimum of 20 acres. Anything from 20 acres to 39 acres is, it must be stocked with at least 80% forest. Uh, and there's some definitions for that, and you can find that on the website of what they define a forest as. Um, because it's something as simple as a, a tamarack swamp uh, is considered a forest, so you have to look into those definitions. Uh, anything over 40 acres has to be 50% stocked. Now, that program gives you an exemption on the school operating uh, portion of the taxes, so that 18 mil exemption, but it does tack on two mils uh, for being in the program. So it really comes out to an equivalent of a 16 mil savings. And again, you get a cap on your taxable value. Now, to be in that program, you have to meet those forested qualifications in those, you know, that 20 to 39 segment or that 40 and over segment. And you have to have a forest management plan written by a uh, QFP forester. So like myself, I'm, I have the credentials that I'm a QFP uh, forester that I can write those plans um, and they can be approved. Now those plans are usually either in 10 year or 20 year increments. Now those forest management plans, um, you know, what they really are they tend to be, at least for my plans, are 30, 30 all the way to a 70-page document. They have maps in there. We break down the forest based on stands, um, and those stands are going to be uh, broken apart based on species composition, size. We want things that, that those stands to be similar in appearance across that area, um, and then we're going to give recommendations on how to manage those. Where the QFP program uh, comes in is where if you have a recommendation, I should say, if, if I have a recommendation as a forester that there needs to be a commercial harvest in there and you agree with it, they're going to hold you to that standard, um, whether that be five years down the road in your management plan, but you have to follow through with that commercial harvest because why they're giving landowners this exemption is just like the ag program, you know, folks that have their property in agricultural use, that's going into the Michigan agricultural industry. So that's, they look at it as you're putting money into the economy, so we're going to give you a tax break. Same with QFP. Um, they look at it as, you know, our forest industry is pretty, pretty big in Michigan. So if you're putting money into the forest uh, industry and in the, in the economy, then we're going to give you a tax break back. 
Um, so that's one of the things is if there is a commercial harvest scheduled in that plan, you have to follow through with it. And that's really the only big thing as far as being in that program. And it's well worth the savings. Um, you know, when I talk to landowners, if they have a four-year parcel, you know, they might be saving anywhere from 500 to $1,500 a year with that 18 mil exemption. And at first they might go, well, I don't know if this is really worth it. And then you, you, you relate it to, well, you could go buy a brand new hunting blind every year for that. And then it's all of a sudden that clicks in the landowner's mind. They go, yeah, let's get into this program. And at least with my uh, services and the cost of making that forest management plan, it tends to be the first year or two that you're in the QFP, that savings is kind of a wash with the cost of the management plan. But then that next eight years or that next 18 years, um, that's all going to be money saved, you know, in the pocket so that you're not having to pay the government uh, for property tax. So with that, like I said, you got to have a forest management plan, and there are two different uh, routes that you can go to get some cost share on those forest management plans. There's one, uh, the forest stewardship program, which is what we talked about earlier, uh, the award I received. That program currently right now, and it changes year to year, but right now uh, during this uh, calendar year, it's going to be $200 per acre plus 50 cents per forested acre that they will subsidize that plan cost for. The other option is the NRCS, uh, so your local soil conservation district. You can apply for a CAP 106 plan, a conservation activity plan, um, forest management plan, and they tend to pay out a little bit more, but at least for my business, they have a little bit more of a requirement within their plans for inventory data, so those plans tend to cost more. Those you have to apply for, um, and it can take a while to get approval. And for the FSPs, the forest stewardship plans, those uh, get approval through us individual foresters, so it's it's an immediate approval for that money. So you can just know that you've already got that 200 plus 50 cents per forested acre already paid for on that plan. Um, with both of these plans, and it's, it's getting a little bit deep now, there's a program also through the NRCS called EQIP, uh, Environmental Quality Incentive Program, that both of these plans, if you have them, you qualify to apply for, for things like forest stand improvement, brush management, uh, tree and shrub establishment, uh, forest trails and landings creation. Um, and they will subsidize the cost of those different activities um, to landowners, so then it's, it's going to help with the overall cost of those projects. So it's a really good um, resource to have when you have those plans that you can also dip into this EQIP um, bank account, you could say, and uh, go through those applications and then hopefully get some money for, for doing some of these activities that you're already intending on doing on your property anyways uh, to cover some of that cost. So, yeah, so like I said before, qualified forest program requires a forest management plan. Uh, in that forest management plan, there's two ways you can get grants through the forest stewardship program or the NRCS. Um, and then kind of a date to remember uh, for the qualified forest program to get enrolled into the next year's uh, taxes where you start to save your taxes, it has to be submitted by September 1st. So like right now for the 2021 uh, tax cuts, you would have had to submit your application in September of uh, September 1st of 2020 to get the 2021 tax breaks. 
So now we're looking at September 1st of 2021 for landowners to be then enrolled uh, coming into 2022. So yeah, a lot, a lot of information. Um, yeah, great. No, like I said, once I once I start talking, I I don't tend to shut up. But uh, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the the gist of those programs. Like I said, qualified forest program tends to be a better program for most landowners that I work with. Um, and in most situations, if you're not intending to build on that property in the next few years and you meet all those qualifications, it's it's well worth it because you're saving money. That was a hell of an explanation. Thank you for doing that. And for that last one, the QFP, was there a land size requirement? Yeah, so QFP, it has to be a uh, – can be no less than 20 acres. Son of a bitch. Yeah, so if you're – right. Yeah, yeah, I know, because I would have already mentioned it to you if, yeah, if, sure. uh, if you were qualified. Yeah, and usually for the NRCS plans, um, because those you can still have a plan and not get in the qualified forest program. So, I, you know, I encourage landowners, if they're going to manage forest, even if they're in the homestead exemption or the agriculture exemption, it's still a great idea to have a forest management plan on your property because it's really going to outlay, um, you know, the type of, management activities you're doing out there and and the overall progress to get to your goals and objectives. Um, With the NRCS, they tend to only fund plans, I believe, if you at least have 10 acres of forest. Uh, And a forest stewardship program is, I think, a minimum of 20. So you can still go through those programs, um, at least the forest stewardship one, but you won't get the cost share funds if you're under 20 acres of forested land. Hey, yeah, Hunter, lots, lots I, uh, of information. Yeah, that was an amazing amount of information. Um, I have one question for you, kind of switching gears a little bit, but before we wrap this up, uh, so one thing that you see a lot or hear about a lot in the habitat world is all about fire. And I was curious about your thoughts as a forester as where fire is missing from forest ecology um, or where it could be used more, or if there's any areas where you wish it could be used more but because of state requirements or regulations, you just simply aren't able um, to implement it as much as you wish. Yeah, so I am, I'm a big lover of prescribed burns. I think it's an awesome tool. It's a natural tool. So when we're doing timber harvest, we're trying to, um, we're trying to do management that would be similar to a natural event, you know, something like either fire running through this, moving through the system uh, through the forest or, you know, a large wind event where we blow over a lot of trees. We're trying to replicate those types of things when we're doing forest management. But, yeah, if you can actually use fire in your system, if it's the right system to use it in, um, it can be super beneficial. And I would love to offer that service, um, but unfortunately the cost of liability insurance uh, to do that as well as, having the equipment, the crews, the timing can be very difficult to, to do because obviously you have to have the right conditions. Um, when I did work for the DNR, uh, so I didn't really cover that part, but I worked for the Department of Natural Resources for a short time uh, between undergrad and graduate school. I got certified as a wildland firefighter, and I was able to go out on a couple prescribed burns, and it was it was awesome. It was, you know, you're out there with, you know, I'm, in this scenario, we're on state land. There were goals and objectives for those individual stands. The one stand, we 
had a really hard time getting the fire going. It wasn't the right time of season, um, and we didn't really achieve our objective, um, but we were trying to do a understory burn in a red pine stand, and then we're going to go through and do a shelterwood harvest in that red pine to try to get natural red pine regeneration. So pretty cool when you start breaking it down and, and thinking about all the different ways you can use prescribed fire. You know, the most common scenario people think about is burning old fields to get, you know, that new fresh regeneration of grasses and forbs, um, you know, pushing that succession back. But doing understory burns and hardwood, you know, oak-dominated forest, you just don't see it very often because I think there's that risk factor that, you know, when you're burning a field, that fire can only climb as high as the grass. Um, but if you're burning in the woods and then it gets away from you and it's not the right scenario where, you know, you've got a lot of uh, drier material in that uh, upper canopy, you know, you start thinking in your head, if this gets away from me, this could be really, really bad. So a lot of times people don't even attempt it because it's just the risk is so much higher than the reward. Um, but I would love to see more landowners use it. In my questionnaire for my forest management plans, it is one of the recommendations that I ask if landowners are willing to do it or not, because if if they are, I'll, I'll recommend it all day. For Michigan, you have to have a burn permit, um, but there's nothing stopping you from doing prescribed burns on your own property. You just have to go through the right processes, uh, processes to to get the right permit. So you do have to have a burn permit. With that burn permit, you usually have to have a uh, a burn plan. Uh, but once you get through all that, and if you've got a couple buddies that are willing to do so, and make sure you don't tackle too much area to get started, uh, maybe talk to some state uh, wildland firefighters that do this, you know, as a job and ask, hey, what can we do um, to make this the easiest and for our first time and to get used to it and, and get some really good advice. Um, I don't think it's anywhere out of the realm of possibilities for the average landowner to do. I think it's, I think it would be great to see more of it. It's just, like I said, the, the risk factor is so high that it tends to kind of get overlooked by the, by most landowners. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but yeah, no, I, I ab- absolutely prescribe burning. No, absolutely, it does. I, I know in the state of Ohio, I don't even know what the regulations are. I know in uh, where our property is in the eastern side of the state, um, you know, heavily forested, uh, you know, foothills of Appalachia. So it, it's definitely regulated. Uh, when I've talked even to state foresters, they're like, oh, we'd love to do it more. And they do it at the state level, like Shawnee State Forest or something like that. But they're like, when it comes mm-hmm. to private landowners, there just isn't enough support to really do it and they don't want to just allow people to you know start as as uh the one board said start dropping matches um but they do feel like it's something that's missing um you know that was there you know in in, you know pre-european settlement and and it occurred quite often and it would be nice to see that occur again um but -hmm. there's obviously complications so no thank you for your expert opinion on that yeah, I, I like I said, I I would love to see more of it. Um, I've done a few of my own on our own family farm of just you know early successional fields where we've burned them. Um, but I myself have never even on my own property done an understory burn just for the fact that it it's a lot of time you got to put into it and there's a lot of complications that you got to go through to to get to that to that stage. So 
hopefully, like I was talking with this Isabella County property that we're managing with the does and everything, we're thinking about doing a, there's about 30 acres of forest um, that are, like I said, are, are that nice mature oak and beech. Um, we're thinking about doing a little bit of prescribed burning there to see what the differences are because, you know, removing that leaf litter layer and opening up that bare soil that gives so much more availability for germination uh, for all that seed falling throughout the year. Um, so it could really increase your, your seedling densities. No, that was a nice question, Al. I'm glad you added that in. I think um, I've always wanted to learn how to do that myself, but Hunter brought up a great point about the liability, which hadn't crossed my mind. That's, uh, that's, that's a big deal up here. And the conditions are, you know, we don't have as much burning season, I think, as some other states who do it more often, but um, I could be wrong there. Um, Hunter, this has been amazing, a bunch of information, and I just want to, you know, wrap this up how people can find you and all that good stuff. But I also want to know what your favorite tree is. Could be for habitat, could be for hunting, could be just one you like looking at. Let me know as a forester, as a consulting forester, what is Hunter's favorite tree? So I got a lot of favorite trees, but I think if I had to break it down, it's still the good old white oak. Um, You just see one of those big wolfy white oaks out in the field or – a big, beautiful, you know, big saw timber one right in the middle of a forest. They just pop. With that said, you know, overall, white oak's probably my favorite, but when you're walking through a, a lowland forest or along a riverside and all of a sudden you see a sycamore, they, they really stick out too. So it would probably be a tie between a sycamore and a, and a uh, you know, a, a pretty basic white oak. Um, well, how about you guys? What you, I want to hear your favorites. No, no, I'm, I wasn't ready for that. You can't ask that question. Yeah, Brian, Brian, your favorite tree. Uh, I like the sycamore answer. That's, I think that's the first time we've gotten that, and I, I always stand in awe of the white and the tan bark that peels up on them every time I walk by one. So always awesome. Yeah, they, just, they don't look ones. like they fit in. No, no, not at all. Yep. Uh, for, for me, it's it's a tough one for me, too. Uh, I like the old sturdy giant apple tree that's out of place in the middle of a hardwood stand that's still surviving. And every once in a while you'll see some apples on it. Not sure how it can with very limited sunlight, but I've always been, always been impressed by those uh, old timber stand big apple trees hanging out there. So that'll be mine for tonight. Yeah. Al, what do you got, buddy? Probably like a hinge cut maple. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm just tree joking. of heaven. Yeah, yeah, tree of heaven. Uh, no, I would probably. Don't make me hang off the phone. I'd have to go. Puncher did not laugh with that response. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd have to go. I'd have to go with the white oak. I mean, there's just there's a few on the on the farm, and uh, they're just majestic. I mean, I've always loved white oaks, and uh, anywhere I'm at, I mean, I could see one. Downtown Columbus or Cleveland, I see a big white oak, and it's just like, man, the stories that thing could tell. So uh, I'm with Hunter on the white oak. Good answer. Good answer. I've always loved the hell out of some some white oaks. Um, I think my favorite, if it wasn't a white oak, it would be a gigantic, super old white pine. 
I know that I have a few in my in my backyard here that are about five foot in diameter, two of them, and they're pretty epic. Or if you go up into in to northern Michigan where I hunt up near um, like Thompsonville area, you traverse a lot of that state land up there, and every now and then you'll find a little patch. There are two or three of them, and they're just I don't know. They're just insane. They're they're awesome. They're towering. I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge conifer fan. I've always loved conifers, and and that one is just when they're. I, I'm talking like a big, big one, like four or five foot in diameter. I'd say. Yeah, and that's a good choice. It's our state tree, so I don't think you're fall, probably far off from a lot of miscellaneous. Well, but, Hunter, uh, let's uh, hear where everybody can can find you if they want to learn more about your company and and possibly hire you as a forester. Yeah, so I do have a website. It's HuntersLandManagementLLC.com, kind of a mouthful. Uh, Remember that hunter is plural, uh, but no apostrophe. Uh, Also, you can find me on Facebook at HuntersLandManagementLLC, as well as Instagram at HuntersLandManagementLLC. And I'm sure you guys can post up some contact information, anyone that, you know, would like to discuss qualified forest program or sustainable forestry. Um, my phone number is always a good good way to contact me uh, or email uh, HuntersLandManagementLLC at gmail.com. That's awesome, man. Yes, we will definitely put a link to your website in the show notes here when this goes live. And, uh, dude, that was that was great. A bunch of information. I knew it would be a good show. So thanks for coming on and thanks for um, – you know, your your uh, contribution to the Habitat Chat group. And I uh, just really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you guys having me on. It, I feel like we got a lot of information out today. And uh, hopefully as some of these studies we're looking at progress, um, we can do it again and, and talk, a, talk a little bit more in depth about forestry and silviculture. Would love that. Would love that. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Hunter. Nope, thanks, guys. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com. We have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. 
We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better Habitat Managers.